everybody here. Um, it's nice to have you all, and again, different feelings, perspectives, ideas, and we will certainly share those with, with my teacher who I'll introduce in a few moments. Um, you got a flyer also from Coming Shorts when you walked in. We have a wonderful evening planned in our community that's open to everyone. Um, it's happening on Saturday night, February 20th, after Shabbat. Um, my friend and teacher, Craig Taubman, will be coming back to Phoenix. It's been quite some time. Uh, he'll be performing at Chaparral High School. So you have all the information here. If you want to be there, there is a, uh, a link to brown paper tickets where you can go and select your seats. Um, that's how the program works. So please go online, check it out. Um, there's lots of opportunities also to become a sponsor. So um, if you have any questions, Cheryl Hammerman, one of our co-chairs of the evening is here. Our president, Linda Moskowitz, is here. Um, anyone who has a, a bronze badge uh, who is here um, can certainly answer those questions. So I did want to point that out this evening. When I was a, um, a US wire uh, in Los Angeles, California, Woodland Hills, I had an opportunity to share time at a synagogue as a teenager, B'nai Israel in Tustin. And I got to know, uh, as a teenager, from several rows in the back of the pews, where only he was far as coming out of these regional events, Rabbi Eli Spitz. Fast forward several years later, after spending time here at Arizona State University, um, I went back to the Ziegler School to become a rabbi at the Rabbinic Studies of, of, of the Ziegler School in Los Angeles at the American Jewish University. In my senior year, I had the opportunity to um, be gifted to learn with Rabbi Spitz, who um, at that time um, was one of my teachers, but also became um, even more of a friend. Uh, part of the reason why I'm really friends with Rabbi Spitz is both of us are Sun Devils. We graduated from Arizona State University, uh, have connections to Hillel and Rabbi Barton Lee, and, um, and Rabbi Spitz is a graduate of rabbinic ordination from the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. He has served on the Law Committee of the Conservative Movement of Jewish Law and Standards. Uh, he has written extensively on this particular topic. I know that there are people in this room who are contemporaries of mine and beyond who have a lot of questions. Some of us have gone through loss in the past year, or it might have been decades ago. And so I want us to be open to that conversation tonight. And, um, Rabbi Spitz is going to share some initial thoughts as part of that conversation rooted in the book that he has written that is for sale on Does the Soul Survive? And following, I don't know, 40, 45 minutes, we'll take some questions. Uh, I'll probably some answers, and then we'll, we'll finish the evening and have a few moments to meet with him a little bit personally afterwards. Does that sound good? My pleasure to welcome Rabbi Yali Spitz. Great treat for me to be in my hometown. I was born in Phoenix, and I still have a sister here. She's not here yet, and a brother-in-law and uh, cousins. So it's always a great opportunity for me to be in the Valley of the Sun and to meet new people. But there's some. People I've known a long time, one of my former presidents from Tustin, California, Steve Helfgott, his wife Barbara here, Linda Moskowitz and I go back to Camp Ramah. I'm looking around and uh, seeing many new people. But it's, it's a feeling of being at home to be with you. The book that is the focus of my talk tonight is this book that came out originally in the year 2000 called Does the Soul Survive? The Jewish Journey to Belief in Afterlife, Past Lives and Living with Purpose. It is now, as of um, about six months ago, a second edition, which allowed me to write a new introduction to refresh some of the movie references, some of the new books that have come out to react to them in a new introduction. The way, so I have a lot of experience with this talk. I don't need any notes. I have a lot of experience with it. And the way that I've learned to enjoy doing it is to, is to divide our time about evenly. So I'll talk for about a half hour to set up the issues. And then a half hour of conversation that relies on your questions and reactions. 
When I was in rabbinical school, I learned a lot about the Jewish thought and philosophy. I learned what Maimonides taught about the world to come and how that differed from Nachmanides, two great rabbis of Spain of the, the Middle Ages. I learned what Chazal, the sages of the Talmud, had to share about resurrection of the dead. Actually, I never learned in rabbinical school that Judaism believed in reincarnation, but do know that it is a, among the mainstream views of what happens in the world to come. In the Zohar, reincarnation is a given. I can return to that topic. So I knew from rabbinical school philosophy and variety of views, but I never had a teacher who said he or she believed that when they died, they would at some level survive. And when I started going to the bedside of people who were dying, I had no opinion as to really what happened. And my experiences as a rabbi, and again, I want to pause just to say what an extraordinary treat for me to spend time with Rabbi Kaplan. The Talmud says that there is jealousy in life except in two cases, for one's children and one's students. In that context, there's only kvelling. There's only taking satisfaction. So being in this space and knowing how well you have embraced and succeeded with Micah together gives me such joy. You're welcome. So, so bedside, the work that we do. I'm with people who are dying. I really had no opinion because I didn't have life experience to know. And the approach that I'm going to take tonight is really the same approach that comes out of this journey. And that is as a juror. We who are modern want to hear what others say but a juror, when you're in that jury box, you have to decide for yourself what you believe, based usually on circumstantial evidence. Rarely, which is rarely in a jury trial, is the evidence so clear that you know. In fact, the Talmud, in contrast to American law, the Talmud says that if the entire Sanhedrin agrees that somebody committed a capital offense, you let them go because the evidence can never be that clear. There's always room for some doubt. And at the same time, having sat on juries, and the reason I got on the law committee, as Rabbi Kaplan noted, it was because I was a lawyer before I became a rabbi, so it feels natural to talk in terms of this approach. It's the approach of looking at evidence, weighing it, determining if the witnesses are credible. Is there a pattern in terms of different witnesses and their story, do they fit together? And there's one more piece in terms of being a juror, in terms of looking at information that's very important for this process of tonight being jurors and asking from the stories we'll share, do you believe that when you die, there's life after life. Do you believe that there's a quality of awareness that persists? So as a juror, there's a jury box. And I know that different people will interpret the evidence differently, and it's wise to listen to wise, to smart people. When I read traditional Jewish texts, for me, oh, there's the Klugers, there's all kinds of people here, I just have to get oriented. Great to see you. So as, as you look at the um, jury box, you want to listen to what other people have to say because they might have seen it a little differently and allow you to rethink your initial opinions. So for me, not just as a Jew, but as a thoughtful juror, I find value in reading traditional texts in hearing what somebody who was so brilliant, like Maimonides or Nachmanides, 
what they have to say, though, as I listen to them, as I noted it, they don't necessarily agree with each other. And yet, at the end of the day, I have to come up with a decision on my own, guilty or not, or in this case, do I believe in survival of the soul or not? And one more piece before I set up what some of the evidence might look like. And that is, I've learned in doing these talks that because you want something to be true does not mean it's false. So I'll say it again. Because you want something to be true does not mean that it's false. Most of us want to believe that we're lovable and beloved. The fact that we want that to be true doesn't mean that we're not loved and lovable. So the fact that most of us would hope that our loved ones who have passed still survive doesn't mean that they have vanished into thin air. At the same time, because it's what we would want to be true, it does mean one has to be a little bit more aware of that bias and looking at the evidence. So my journey, my journey as jurors. Rabbis do a lot of their work at Kiddush. That's where people, not just people you already know, but people who are visiting, seeing you as a spiritual leader, have a story they want to tell you. So I was a young rabbi, a long time ago. And my first, this is my 20, I'm saying this for, for the health gods, this is my 28th year in my synagogue. So it's a long, long time. It was the first year or two in which a man came over to me at a kiddush and he said, I was in a motorcycle accident. And as I was on the side of the road, unconscious, somehow I had this experience where I was drawn out of my body and from above, this out-of-body experience, I was watching the medics work on me. I felt no pain. I was more and more feeling a quality of bliss. And then suddenly I got snapped back into my body and racked with pain. Now I had never heard of a near-death experience before. There was a book written in 1975 by a man named Raymond Moody Jr. called Life After Life. It sold 10 million copies. Came bestseller. He was a cardiologist. And he interviewed for that book 150 different people who had had cardiac arrest, technically no heartbeat, technically dead. And when they were revived, told stories of being drawn out of their bodies, drawn toward a light, not feeling pain, being given a choice to return or to continue. In some cases, a life review. In some cases, a lit figure making a conversation of the offer to return. So I said to this man at this kiddush many years ago, I said to him, that experience you've described to me, what impact has it made on you? And he said, I'm no longer afraid of dying. He was, at that time, probably in his early 40s. He said, I'm no longer afraid of dying because I had this experience where I'm now believing that there's a quality of awareness that's more than my five senses. That as I was watching those medics work on me, that part that was watching was not this piece, but something else. And as a result, he said, I'm far more spiritual. And then added, but that doesn't mean Rabbi go to synagogue more often. <laughs> so that's one category for you to ask me more about. And I can tell you, in regard to that category, of my experiences with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross here in Phoenix. You know that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross lived her last years here in the valley. And... She wrote the foreword to Life After Life, 1975. The Denial of Death was written in 1971. 
In that book, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, a psychiatrist, challenged American culture. At that point, 1971, 50s and 60s, when a person developed cancer, the working medical philosophy was you don't tell the patient. Because at that time, there was very little to do in response to cancer. So the theory was, if you tell somebody they have cancer, you tell them, you're essentially telling them that they're dying and they're going to be depressed. So don't depress them. The doctor would tell the family about the big C, but it was taboo even to use the word cancer. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was a psychiatrist who dedicated her career to working with people who were dying, she said, intuitively, people know that they're dying. And even more, they intuitively often know when they're going to die or can put it off. And in her work with dying, she had many of these near-death experiences. And she would write, and she wrote the introduction, as I say, to, Melvin, to, to Moody's book. She said she had patients who were blind from childhood or even birth, who in their out-of-body experience could describe not only what they heard in the emergency room, but they could describe the color of the tie of the physician and more. When they were children, and she dedicated the last 15 years of her career to working almost exclusively with children. She said she couldn't do it when her kids were young. It would have been too hard, but when they were grown, that became her focus. And she said, you know, if a child is dying, their instincts are to want their mother and father to comfort them. But invariably, a near-death experience is an encounter with somebody who's already died. And it was only with a parent who had already died. Sometimes in a car accident, a child was in one room, so she told, and a mother had died in the other room. The child would then tell the near-death experience with the mother. But that's because the mother had died. One more piece, since I'm thinking about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, because I'm in Phoenix. My mother, I don't know if any of you remember, like, as I said, I grew up in Phoenix. My sister has now arrived with her husband, Michael, and my cousin, Danny, and my niece, Rose. So I don't know if any of you have lived in Phoenix long enough to remember Hetty's House of Wigs. So Hetty was our, my mother. When you're ready, come and see Hetty, the best in the vest. I'll sell you a, a Vic. It's the frame of the picture. You'll look good. My sister and I used to make those TV commercials for Hetty's House of Wigs. In any event, my mother was not doing well. She had some strokes toward the end of her life. And I wrote a, a letter to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross because I was so moved by her writings of working with death and dying. So I wrote her a letter, didn't know where she lived, I sent it to her publisher, and I got, and, and I gave the sermon, this is um, 24 years ago, the sermon on Rosh Hashanah, why I had grown to believe in survival of the soul. And I talked about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and some stories from the congregation. Congregants have given me permission to use their names to tell the story of apparitions appearing before a woman on the eve of her daughter's funeral, having a daughter and died in a car accident. The story of doing a funeral at graveside and calling the widow by the wrong name, she being Chinese, and apologizing to the widow for the slip and saying, no, that's fine, Rabbi. That was Al's pet name for me. And I say, well, what is it? She says, it's just Chinese sounding, but it was just something he'd say to tease me. So I, I had these stories. I wrote Elizabeth Kubler-Ross a letter. The same day that I gave the sermon, I got a postcard from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross from Scottsdale saying that she was living here and had a stroke and invited me to come visit. So that year, I visited with my mom about six times, and each visit went to see Elizabeth Kubler-Ross as well. A remarkable woman, 
had a lot to say about death and dying. I can talk more about her and that experience. One other is, I think, besides forever. The Ross of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was her husband, who was Jewish. Now, she was in the death business. In those days, Kevorkian was pretty busy. And she knew Kevorkian, so it was like fun to talk to her about Kevorkian, you know, or the death business. That's that. She didn't know that Jews believed in an afterlife because she had only acted with liberal rabbis who, at an earlier time, didn't really talk about this. When they talked about immortality, it was your memory would survive. They didn't actually talk about your consciousness would survive. So again, with one eye on the clock, I now have five minutes before we become a conversation. Here are the topics for you to ask questions about. Near-death experiences, mediums, I'll give you, you know, little teasers. The Bible, Torah, says twice, don't go to a necromancer. In fact, there's a death penalty for necromancers, hence the witches of Salem. I mean, getting stoned, that's from the Bible. And yet, there are many stories of mediums. First in the Bible, book of Samuel, King Saul wanting to talk to the prophet Samuel. Witch of Endor, the medium, communicating. Stories in the Talmud. When you die, come back and tell me what it was like on the other side. Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah, Moshe Isserlis, writing for Ashkenaz, Jewry, permits talking to the dead. So mediums, not so clear-cut in terms of it being forbidden. Near-death experiences, Mediums, reincarnation, art scroll siddur. That's the most popular siddur in a modern Orthodox synagogue. Shema al hamitah, the prayer you say before you go to sleep at night, the Shema, has an introductory paragraph. The paragraph, and the reason you're saying the Shema in part, is because Letting go into sleep is a taste of death. The Talmud would say it's one, that sleep is one-sixtieth of death. And so when you go to sleep, you let go of control, you let go of consciousness, you're never sure you're awake, and you do traditionally a confessional. Forgive me like Yom Kippur. Forgive me for anybody I might have injured, whether knowingly or unknowingly, but maybe for the Shogate, and in the art scroll Sidur, whether in this life or in a previous life. Right there. Why? Because, at least in the Zohar, some things before, but in the Zohar, which became widely accepted, that mystical commentary to the Torah, an allegorical reading of Torah, in the Zohar, reincarnation is a given. At the same time, on any of these topics, reincarnation is not necessarily, in the Zohar, the same reincarnation of Isaac Luria and his circle, the people responsible for L'chadodi and Kabbalah Shabbat. For them, reincarnation was given too, but Isaac Luria has a little different description. The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism, according to his disciples, he could look at a person to determine what needed fixing, what tikkun was needed in their life, and could see all their previous lives, so they said, like flipping through a deck of cards. Which is only to say, in Hasidic circles, reincarnation is a given. So, back to the categories for you to ask questions about. Near-death experiences, mediums, telepathy. Telepathy is the ability to know something that you don't know with your five senses. In this category of near of, of dying, there is a remarkable phenomenon of people having this experience, not uh, in a moment I'll, I'll ask, that you know when a loved one has died at a distance, even though you didn't get the phone call. Sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night and you just know somebody you loved has died. You might smell their presence, you might 
feel their love around you and you just can't get back to sleep. Have any of you ever had that experience knowing when somebody had died? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And there's probably more. And I will add one more thing in this regard. The hands are a little slow to go up and that's natural. And here's why. When we have these twilight zone experiences, these woo-woo experiences, if we do, and not everybody does. I'm not an expert witness. I'm a juror, meaning I haven't had this experience directly. I've only interviewed the witnesses. But what I have found about the witnesses is that when they have had these experiences, they're different than a normal dream. Social psychologists would say that the re to say that the and again I'm, I was a social I said I'm free associating ASU one of the finest social psychologists in the world Robert Cialdini um, and I was his student so um, here I'm thinking of Robert Cialdini who wrote the most popular textbook on social psychology and in that textbook it'll say that what happens is that people will say oh that's you know, more than a coincidence. Because they'll constantly think of something and nothing will happen. And then they'll think of something, you know, and they'll, something will happen, a connect. Like, you're thinking about a lot of people and then the phone rings. You go, oh, I'm just thinking about them. But you've been thinking about lots of people and the phone doesn't ring, so it's just like you forget about it. But when the phone rings, you go, aha, telepathy. Right? So that's the challenge, the telepathy. That after the fact, we hold on to it and we forget or ignore all the times it doesn't work out. But here's what's different from my experience with people who've had those kinds of telepathic connections, of knowing when somebody has died. It doesn't feel like a normal dream. You literally wake up startled in the middle of the night and four hours later, get the phone call. But when it happens, it touches something very primal in us. So we don't tend to want to reveal it because we might be dismissed. And it feels personal. So a lot of these experiences, now I'm going to sum up for questions. Near-death experience, mediums, apparitions, telepathy are overlapping but distinctive experiences that point toward awareness that survives beyond five senses. In terms of fellow jurors, the rabbis believe almost by consensus that there is an afterlife, which is true of all religions and all peoples around the world. You didn't have to hear it from somebody else culturally. You could be a Bushman in Africa or an Aborigine in Australia or living in a capital city in Europe, and your faith traditions would all believe in an afterlife. So that afterlife is universally believed. The jurors, the rabbis, lived in a time and in a place where there wasn't the kind of skepticism that we live with as modern people which I think is a healthy thing. Nonetheless, the rabbis have views on survival of the soul, resurrection of the dead, reincarnation, as mediums kosher. Um, go ahead and ask. I would wait our conversation. Yes. And you remember my mother's store, so you get first, but he gets to be first. No, I don't remember your mother's store. Oh. <laughs> My wife and I, back in the, about 83, my wife and I went with Mac Berman. I looked at purchasing your mom's business, my wife and I. We went to your, we sat in your living room with your mom and we talked. That's the question. Okay. I would like to tell you three different types of experience you've had. Give one, ask a question so we can get to Ask a question? Yeah, please. Uh, I'll ask a question later. Questions right now would be awesome. Though, though I will, it's Mac? Gerald. Gerald, I'm sorry. So also tell me your name, so I have it. Can you do Gerald just like a, a 
paragraph description of one experience? I will tell you prior to my wife's, to my daughter's dying, I would argue with her there's no life after death. The probably the best experience, there's uh, the one experience I'm going to tell you is my wife dragged me into a media group of people in a church, never went there before, and the, we walked in last, we sat in the back, and she said to my wife, your daughter's here. She told us that we had two granddaughters. She told us we had two red-headed granddaughters. She told us a, a lot about my daughter that she never knew, and after we went up to thank her, and she said, do you understand Jewish? This was in a church. And she said to me, your daughter is telling me that her body is bakakt. This is a person who never knew my daughter, didn't know how she died. And I can tell you lots of things. Uh, what? And was Christian. And also I want to tell you numerology has a lot to do with it. Starting from the number of the grave that my daughter was buried in, which I argued with you was the wrong number, and we now have about two dozen instances of a number being related to after death. So I'm going to just add to Gerald's only because I'm reminded as he, see, I don't, in terms of this conversation, it adds, if you have, again, as Gerald did very um, graciously in terms of trusting us, and also to the point, actually, let me take that one. Um, you know, a little, a little vignette, a little story as Gerald was kind of, and again, as in Gerald's case with his wife, it's talking about something so deeply important and personal that, one, I want to express gratitude and uh, acknowledge that we're talking about loss also. But I'll build on that. My wife, who's not here yet, she will be here, which means I get to talk if she's not here, I can say, and she can't say, no, that's not true. So when we, we went, likewise, to hear a medium, James Von Prague, because somebody told us to go, and we came late, we didn't know him, didn't believe really in this kind of stuff, sat in the back, and it's a long story, you'll find more of it in the book, but basically she said, look, he said, looking over at her, he said, and I'm telescoping this, you were looking for, um, yesterday for um, a band-aid for your son whose name begins with J. Now we have two sons, Joey and Jonathan, and my wife gasped and said, yes, that's me. And then she would say to me later, I was looking for a band-aid for Joey yesterday, and I couldn't find it. And that only began him saying to her, your grandfather is with me, and you can read more of those, that story. But, but that's part of my journey. So I say too, I live pretty grounded. I don't live in this place. I'm not an expert witness. But I've had these experiences that led me to believe that there's more to reality than our five senses would know. Sir, why don't you stand and Rabbi Kaplan, I'll give that to you. Hi, my name is David. You have alluded to life after death as being awareness. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Is it awareness of something? You told the story of the man in the motorcycle and having an awareness of people working on him. What about the concept of pure awareness? And how would you, tell me again, your, now hold on to the David. David, how do you define pure awareness? Uh, I define pure awareness as uh, a calm, lively silence. So hold the mic for a moment, David. It's okay. So what happens after we die? I don't know. I can tell you some of the possibilities. Maimonides, back to the jury room, he describes Olam Haba, the world to come, as essentially pure awareness, namely, that it's the awareness of our capacity to know, 
our imaginative capacity in the presence of God, the source of all knowing. And the more evolved we are, he would say, in our understanding of God, meaning pure consciousness, the more we bask in the presence of God. That idea is from the Talmud, where Rabbah says that in the afterlife, all there is is sitting with a crown in the presence of God. There's no eating, there's no drinking. When Maimonides wrote his commentary to the 10th chapter of Sanhedrin, the Mishnah, Kolchelik, he then describes different views of the of Olam Haba. He says, for many, Olam Haba is a place of physical pleasure. Eating and drinking, we hear other descriptions, other traditions. And Precisely because he was very influenced by Greek thought or independently saw spirit or pure consciousness as the goal, he dismissed those other possibilities. In that, and basically said, if you want to know somebody well, ask them their dreams, ask them how they see what they would ultimately want. But for him, it was pure consciousness. In terms of books, there is a book by a man named Simcha Paul Raphael, Jewish Views of the Afterlife. It was his doctoral dissertation, he spent 15 years on it, comparing Jewish views, particularly Jewish mystical views, to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, finding dramatic parallels. I'll just pull this piece together. And that is, in that description, there's purgatory, meaning a transition period once you die, and your consciousness is like, like one of those, what do they call them, Matryoshka dolls, you know, like one in the other. So also, I'm, st I'm still pushing the book, there's an analysis within Jewish mystical tradition of different qualities of soul, one within the other, and at the core is the quality of pure consciousness, but outside of that is more the consciousness and the awareness that we experience in our body. So, so, so for the three levels of soul, or for Isaac Gloria five. Okay, um, the just the awareness of the crown in the presence of God, which you described from the Talmud. Right. Here. That's right. From Rabbah, Babylonia, third century. So is that what? What? Getting back to the title of your book, does the soul survive? Is that the neshama uh, that survives? Is, is that, what level is that pure consciousness? How is that, because I'm not interested in the eating and the drinking, I'm interested in the pure consciousness. How is, what's that name and how is that described in Jewish tradition? So, uh, you can hand that back only because- uh, You want me to ask another question? Oh, now, exactly. <laughs> So the, the question that David is now asking is what's the nature of soul? And David is knowledgeable to know that traditionally there's three levels of soul called Narn. There's Nefesh, Ruach, and Neshama. Now this is kind of a technical, now I'm getting a little bit more esoteric. But I'll try to do it briefly. You can read more. But nefesh is simply the capacity to be animated. Ruach is emotion. We share in common with animals. If you have a pet, dog, you know that your dog dreams, is loving, is emotional, happy to see you. So we share those two levels of soul. In the, in the Zohar, there's a third level, and that's nishama. It's not just in the Zohar, but nishama is consciousness. It's used in the creation story when it says that God breathed into Adam's nostrils nishmat chayim, the breath of life. That quality of nishama, nishmat chayim, is only used for human beings in the creation story, and that's awareness. 
the gloss later of Isaac Luria will be that there's two other levels, and that's um, called high, and that's Yechida. See, it's been a while to review my notes. So there's two Echaya. Why don't you say Yechida? And Chaya above it before. So Chaya and Yechida. Okay, now, now we're oriented. And again, it's just Isaac Luria, 16th century spot. So that will become a working vocabulary for Hasidut. And even there, it's not clear what he means by this, but he, or at least the way I understood it, is Nishama is the capacity of creativity, of an analysis is higher human functioning. And on a higher level, Yechidahaya uh, is, and Yechida are the capacities to draw closer to God, both union and aliveness, to see the world from God's point of view on an intuitive level. So in sum, to pull all that together, these qualities, these matroshka dolls of soul, I don't know, it's not so clear, when you shed one, but ultimately, for Maimonides and for the mystics, the core, the core is uh, the experience of connection to the source of consciousness. I just want to say before that. Now there's a lot of hands, that's great. I just want to, all that esoteric stuff drew you out. I just want to say before um, the next question, as part of our communal learning with Valadeh Midrash, Rabbi Simcha Raphael will be with us in our community. Uh, that first week of March, March 3rd, Thursday evening, and then for Shabbat at a variety of synagogues, which will also lead then back again to the panel discussion here on March 8th. So we're starting with Rabbi Spitz as that introductory piece. It seems that there is some emotional and spiritual yearning for some answers in our community is speaking, and hence Rabbi Dr. Shmuel is answering our community's call and enabling this conversation to take place pretty seriously. So let's go on to the next question. And, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm now going to say two things. One, how impressed I am by the quality and the quantity of speakers coming to be with you. I have many opportunities to speak in other places. You, Who would know, Phoenix, Arizona, that much learning. It's really wonderful. What I'm going to do now is take more questions, but shorter Questions, shorter answers, having yeah. said that. Yeah. I'll try and make it as short as I can. My name is Seymour. Um, there are those who believe that we are placed on this earth to, to fulfill a purpose. Um, some of us fulfill that purpose before we die, some of us don't. Uh, for those who don't, uh, there are those who believe that their souls are reincarnated so they can come back and have another chance. At fulfilling that purpose. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And does that mean that if someone was lucky enough to, to fulfill his or her purpose on the first go-round, they don't come back? So the whole topic of reincarnation, I, I will point out that the foreword here was written by Brian Weiss. I don't know if any of you have read, by a show of hands, we've read Many Lives, Many Masters. So a good number of you, a book that came out about 30 years ago, translated into 30 languages, including Hebrew, was a bestseller. Oprah spent two hours toward the end of her show um, with Brian Weiss in honor of the 20th anniversary. And Many Lives, Many Masters is the story of a psychiatrist, Brian Weiss, who by using hypnosis had people recount memories from a previous life. So that's just to set up Seymour's question about reincarnation. Having said that, and having spent a week with Brian Weiss in training just to see if it was for real, um, I don't take personally, to cut to the chase, the Baal Shem Tov said, everybody comes back for a purpose, otherwise they would not have needed to be created. I see that, for me, as more poetry than reality. I think that everybody has multiple purposes, multiple incompleteness in any life. As somebody who's privileged to be with, not only people who are dying, but to live a life. Life is always incomplete. There's no perfection in this world. 
And I do believe that learning to live kindly, thoughtfully, wisely elevates us. And I like to think that that quality of being more whole and more elevated um, translates into a longer trajectory. With reincarnation, don't know who gets reincarnated. Brian Weiss would say that you get to be chosen and you come back. So just so I don't want to forget, I want to push another book. This book, Increasing Wholeness, which relates to Seymour's question about finding one's purpose and living it, is my most recent book. It came out in April with 30 YouTubes that are embedded in it. You can still go to YouTube and put in my name and do guided meditations uh, with me. But the quest for living uh, a more complete life is what it means to be alive. Another question? Yeah. That time I didn't give a shorter answer. I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. Hi, my name's Carol, and I'm wondering if you've uh, found on your journey of speaking with everyone how long our soul stays close to us, and when do we reincarnate? So here, all I can say, again, I'm the, the, the juror, James von Prague, you know, I'm going to remember that name, he's a medium, he had two books on the bestseller list about uh, 20 years ago at the same time. He's a very experienced, accomplished medium. He would say that he can only contact people who've been dead for about 20 years. Beyond that, they're out of reach. So that's as close as I have to an answer in terms of how long it takes. I'll add one more piece about this reincarnation. And, and that is, the way Brian Weiss explains it and James Van Prague is it's a bit like a candle. You can, with a candle, light many candles without losing anything from the first. Isaac Luria, in his description of reincarnation, would say that a person is born, this is Luria, with three different souls, and that other people can have those same souls. It's usually a different combination. More to speak, I could say about that. Other question? Yeah. I want to know about the Kabbalah where they say Gilgul Neshamot. So that Gilgul Neshamot is reincarnation. It literally translates into the rolling of souls, rolling from one life, one body. Yeah. It's, there is in Kabbalah. Kabbalah, again, is a big box of Jewish mystical teachings, but in that box, it's a given. It wasn't necessarily agreed to by everybody. Earlier rabbis, like Sadia Gaon, much admired, dismissed reincarnation. It does not appear in the Bible in any way. So it's a later development in Jewish life, but quickly became mainstream. For all of this, there is no proof. That doesn't mean that, again, the fact that there's no proof, the fact that it's not a fact, doesn't mean that there isn't circumstantial evidence to come to conclusions. Ellie, you mentioned the apparitions, and I think this may be a question about that. What does tradition tell us, and what in your experience in doing this work? Um, have you found about people in this realm who are visited by people who have gone on? Um, it's an experience I believe I've had, very different than a dream about someone who's passed, very, very different. And what does the tradition say? What does your experience say? So there's this other category that Steve identifies, I touched on briefly, that of apparitions. Apparitions are usually lived figures that appear to people, not always, but often lived figures at night. And again, you don't know back to proof, is it imagination, projection, or some kind of otherworldly experience? One thing that I have found, which is not, and then I'll come to somebody who, fortunate like Steve, is healthy, but what I found as a pastor 
is if I go and say to people in their last days of life, have you had any visitations from the other side? I learned this from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross to ask this question. More often than I would have anticipated, people will say yes. And the visitations are not by a loved one living across the world. The visitations are a lit figure, sometimes in a dream, sometimes falling asleep, sometimes conscious, who will reassure them. And I've had that experience of people having encountered apparitions from across the board in terms of how skeptical they were before about it, you know, a month before. And so some people have these experiences of apparitions. It, there are stories in the Talmud. Um, that story, some people do have these experiences. Hi, my name is Sandra. Um, where does the concept of the Lamedvavnes come into this? The idea that there are Lamedvav, 36 righteous people who hold up the world because of their goodness is part of the Jewish folk tradition. I, I haven't researched it. I don't think it appears in the Talmud. I think it comes later. And, and you know, the test of a Lamed Vavnik is that they don't themselves know they're a Lamed Vavnik. But there too, there's different kinds of folk tales. There are those who know it but keep it a secret. But the, the idea that there's always 36 people who through their goodness bring merit to sustain the world. It's a parallel and separate concept. It's not unlike the concept of Elijah the prophet. There are more folk tales told about Elijah the prophet than any biblical character because he's the one always testing us to see if we're kind enough to be worthy of the coming of the Messiah. So they're parallel and related. Rabbi Berman. Hi, my name is William. Uh, <laughs> I, the, the central, among the central teachings of Judaism, to me, the most important is reward and punishment. And yeah. There are consequences for the way you live. Right. How does all of that dovetail with these uh, ideas of consciousness that survives and, and mind, or whatever you call it? What's that got to do with reward and punishment? Or does it? So, William asks, if you believe in an afterlife, it sounds like it's going to be good for everybody. What is the, where does the idea of reward and punishment come in? And to some degree, it dovetails with David's question and Seymour's question. Namely, that to experience the reward, which is to experience God's presence and God's love, requires a quality of purification. In the Talmud, it will say that everybody is purified except for the most evil within the course of a year. But that purgatory, the process of purification, can be very painful. Um, that's one of the reasons we do Kaddish only for 11, that we do it for 11 months for a parent. Because we don't want to suggest that our parents were evil, and they needed a full year. So we stop short at 11 months to bring merit in their processing and letting go and doing some kind of realignment for the wrong they have done. So there is in that regard reward and punishment. It also links to the need for reincarnation. All these topics are much more complex, meaning more variables. For instance, only because I never, I didn't give Seymour a very complete answer. I'm not giving you one either, William. And, and that is, for the Zohar, those who are being reincarnated are only being reincarnated for sexual offenses. Later, that category will expand. In the Zohar, back to reincarnation, you're, as a person, being reincarnated into another person. For Isaac Luria, it's more than just into another person. You could be into a crow. So all of this, all of this, from my point of view, is really soft. I don't have any clear understanding of what happens after you die. I, I continue to talk, but I don't have a clear understanding. The only thing I have a clear understanding is that it's normative Jewish view, and that 
these experiences for me add up collectively to a belief in the survival of consciousness. I, would you say, trying to get on a more realistic note, and dovetailing what this gentleman said, that life after death is the, is the memories that you leave behind and how your children and your grandchildren think about you and remember you. Tell me your first name? Judy. So I want to emphasize that from a Jewish point of view, what we have control over is this life, not the afterlife. God will determine into the mystic. What we have control over is our relationships. Even that's, and that's hard. Relationships are hard, up close. And that's our legacy, up close. How our children think of us matters. The love we leave behind, our compassion beyond our own family, for the stranger matters. And so our legacy is the memory we have created when we pass. And yet, both Judaism and this conversation is about more than memory. It's to say that when you die, there's also a quality of awareness that persists. And that can matter too. Hi, Rabbi. My name is Lori. And I would like to know how Judaism reconciles the idea of reincarnation with the idea of an afterlife. In other words, if I were to go to a medium and want to contact, hope to contact my mother or my father, but if they've been reincarnated, how can I do that? So the re way, what's your first name? So the way that that would happen, Lori, is that image I used of the candle. So there could still be a quality of consciousness, and yet a, a reincarnation of part of that consciousness or that consciousness. Any other questions? Yeah. I've been studying this for about 35 years. There's actually a soul divided up into six parts. Is the first part. That's why the answer to that question was that how do you get somebody else to speak to? We have deja vu. Many people have had their lifetime. That's your souls that are actually mixed up with other souls that you've been involved with. So I, I've actually studied this quite a bit. I studied with actually with the Rebbe. I studied in Israel on this topic quite a bit. I know Brian Weiss very well and from Miami Beach. So I, there's there's a lot of questions I can answer for you if you want some of those answers. I really don't have any questions. So, what's your name? Dale Carbois. So, after, look for Dale. He'll tell you more. Hi, my name is Debbie. Um, I'm wondering if part of what goes on is the consciousness or the memories that we create. How do we account for what happens when a child or a younger person passes? In, in, I didn't follow Debbie. Account for what? What does it? If we're saying that part of what the soul surviving means, if I'm understanding you correctly, is partially the memories of that person that live on, and partially the consciousness. So, say a child passes and they don't have a full adult consciousness, um, or they didn't have time to build the same bonds or memories with other people that can, you know, sustain their memory in the same way. How does that? What does that mean about how a child's soul survives? Or does it mean anything different? So again, there's two different dimensions, which goes back to Judy's question. There's the memory of relationship for those who survive, and there's a quality of awareness that persists. When a child dies, for those loved ones, for the parents of that child, whatever age that child is, there's a relationship and a sense of dramatic loss. And that continues for the living person. And in that sense, that child, for the living person, is always part of their awareness. In fact, it's a, a rabbi who deals with death and dying. When a parent loses a child, it's the most unresolvable 
loss, in terms of a parent continuing to live with the presence of their loss and their loved one. What's the nature of the consciousness that survives? Because they may have been too young to develop, if you will, higher levels of consciousness. What rabbis would teach as well is that at the core consciousness is not about intellect, it's about something much more foundational and primal that can't be described. Anybody else? Yeah. You're all right. Last one, and there may be more you can speak to me after, and I'll pull this together. I've had positive experiences with mediums and with psychics. But I studied with a psychiatrist in the 70s who gave classes on higher consciousness. And his answer when asked about this subject was energy is, has been, and always will be. And I wondered what you thought of that. So one way to think about consciousness is as energy or energetic fields. I'll just put out again one other big idea, and that is we don't understand energy and how it communicates. In modern physics, there's a category called entanglement, where you have two electrons that are connected, spinning in the same direction, and they're separated. You change the spin on one, it impacts on the spin on the other, although at a distance. <clears throat> Modern physics can, can document that that's in fact the case. They call it entanglement, but they can't explain how the communication works. So energy, yes, but what that means for people who have simple minds, limited understandings, I don't, can't say a lot. So let me pull this together. I feel like we've been on a journey, I've been your guide, and I didn't take you to a place that you can really describe. That may be a bit of a letdown. Because it's only natural to want to know more, to like be more reassured, and to know what, to see what it, okay, so what's coming up? From my point of view, um, you know, the Balsham Tov said, if you meet somebody who tells you they can eliminate your evil inclination, they're a fraud. That was his test for a charlatan. Because he would say, as long as you're alive, you're going to have certain impulses. That's what it means to be alive. Maimonides, Rambam, we often come back to Rambam, said, if you want to describe olam haba, the world to come, to a person in a body, it's like describing color to a blind person. So you can say to somebody who has no vision and never had vision, you can say, hot is like red, cold is like blue. That's what we mark on our sinks. But if you're a person who sees, you know how incomplete that analogy is. And so that's what Maimonides was saying about this whole conversation. Harold Kushner, who spends time in the valley from time to time, who I much admire, was once asked if he believes in the afterlife. And he said, I believe in it as a matter of faith, but I don't know what it means. He said, when I think of Harold, I think of the guy I see in the mirror and the voice that you're listening to. So if you were to say to me, he said, Harold's going to survive, but without a body, great. But I don't know who he is. Because I, I am who in, I who am embodied, experience the world through my physicality. And what we're talking about is a world or a plane without physicality. Energy, yes. But that's not necessarily physical. It's even different in the way we use energy. And so in sum, to pull this together. There is mystery in life. I lack patience at times with people who have all the answers on either side of the spectrum. Because to be real is never to fully know. 
That's true for the most important things in our life, up close and personal. There's ups and downs. But there is the possibility of making judgment without all the evidence. There is the possibility of those judgments becoming commitments and shaping how we live our life. For me, belief in survival of the soul has been a journey. It's a journey that led me back to where I started, which is what you can control is only what you do while you're still alive. Now, and yet, this journey that has pointed for me to believe, as our tradition teaches, in survival of the soul does make a difference. It means that I'm not as afraid of death and dying as I was otherwise that I can comfort people sincerely at bedside to say this is not necessarily the end and there's reason to believe in survival of the soul. How we live now has a long trajectory makes a difference in how we live. So may the conversation continue, may it feel a bit incomplete, but may that incompleteness motivate you to keep talking, thinking, and most importantly, living righteously. Thank you. Thank you very much.